This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, As Damien said, I have the privilege of being the student ministry director here at New City, and it sincerely is one of the most enjoyable things I get to do. And so uh, aside from that, I also get to preach to you this morning, and so I'm also excited about that. Um, My wife and I live in, in East Winter Park, an area that we've lovingly started to call Golden Hood, and uh, this area, we, we developed a, a theology of place, my wife and I did. And so in other words, we, we think it's important to get to know uh, the neighbors that live around us because we believe God's placed us there. Uh, we get to know the, the baristas at the local coffee shop. We get to know the, the students that are at the college nearby. And, and so in this process, we, we met a guy named Victor, now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Victor's story. Uh, he, he, like I said, is a, a barista at one of the coffee shops, or baristo. I don't really know what a male barista is. But, uh, and, and so we got to get to meet him and, and get to know him over the course of time. And, and he was incredibly generous towards us. He would buy us, like, really good coffee from, from Starbucks or whatever else. And, and he would give it to us because he knew we were trying to learn how to use a French press. And it just, like, became a very good friend of ours. And, and one of the things we would do is we would play soccer together on Saturday mornings. Uh, and uh, Alana, my wife, and I, we, we were playing one Saturday with Victor. And as we were passing the ball around, we were just kind of shooting the breeze and catching up with him. And my wife said to me, Ben, I think we should have Victor over for dinner. She said, I, I just, I get a sense that something's going on with him. And I had only been married months at this time, but I had already been learning that when it comes to intuition, uh, my wife's abilities far exceed my own. And so when she says something like this, I agreed with her. I just said, yeah, of course, let's do that. And, and so 
in the desire to love Victor and to care about him and, and, and to, to get to know him better, we also wanted to speak to him about Jesus. And, and there's this, this genuine longing for him to flourish. And we, we know that that only really truly comes in a relationship with Christ. And so as we're talking and praying and, and wondering what this, this meeting's gonna look like in a week when he comes over for dinner, uh, we found ourselves kind of in that weird, delicate, awkward, uncomfortable situation of how are we gonna actually do this? How are we actually gonna talk to him about Christ? And so that whole week leading up, we, we might maybe prayed more than we usually do. We were, we were asking the Holy Spirit to work. Now, I'm gonna pick up on Victor's story a little bit later, but, but Alana and I, we, we've thought about how profoundly grateful we've been that early on in our discipleship, uh, we learned that a missional lifestyle is integral to following Jesus. And I'm grateful for that because I think uh, as disciples, we often kind of relegate that to the, the end of our priority list. And, and so as we look at this passage here, we're gonna see that mission is central to God's work in the world and it's central to our lives as disciples. In Luke 24, the, the passage that was just read, Jesus is using his last days on earth to prepare this community of followers this band of believers that he bought with his own blood. And so in preparing them, he has to do three things. Jesus knew he needed to dispel their doubts. He needed to mandate mission. And then he needed to make a ascending ascension. And so those are the three points. He needed to dispel their doubts. He needed to mandate mission. And he needed to make ascending ascension. Let's look at the first one here. Now, if you've been reading with, with us in community Bible reading over the course of the last week, you, you kind of know the context of what's been going on, right? Uh, Jesus has, has these disciples, these followers, but, but in the last week or so, Jesus was betrayed and brutally murdered. And so the, the disciples are grieving such a devastating loss, but there's kind of been these reports of some experiences that have been happening, Some people claim that they went to the tomb and and his body was nowhere to be found. And others were saying that angels came to some women and and said that, why are you searching for for the living among the dead? And and then there's these two disciples that had, maybe it was a vision, maybe it was a whatever else you know. Um, But Jesus apparently walked with them and had a little kind of walking Bible study with them. And and so as these reports are are coming up, the, the disciples are together and they're kind of talking and recollecting about what has happened, and that's where we pick up in verse 36. If you have the the insert from your your worship folder, have that with you, because I'm gonna be referring back to the text pretty often. 36 says, and they were talking about these things. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, we had to ask ourselves, why are they so terrified? And, and I think there's probably multiple levels. On, on really a superficial level, uh, they probably are having that experience that we all know so well when, when you're talking about somebody, whether good or bad, and, and then you come to the realization that they've been standing behind you the entire time. And, and I think to some extent that's what's happened here, right? Jesus just, it says he just shows up in the room, unexpected, unannounced, 
uninvited. He's just there. And, and, and so that's probably to some extent startling. Uh, but I think it's a little bit more than that. Now, it says that they also thought he was a ghost. And, and if we know anything from the half a dozen paranormal activity movies that have come out, ghosts are scary, right? We can agree on that. And so, so there's a startled kind of terror that's happening here because they think he's a ghost. But at a much deeper level, Proverbs 13 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. What I think's happened here is, is I think it can be a nauseating experience to hope for something only to have it fall through. I think that it, it is deeply painful when we give ourselves to something in hope and then that thing has, has kind of held up our weight only to be crushed or kicked out from underneath us. And so some of this deep terror and fear and startledness that they're experiencing comes from having hope put into something that was kicked out from underneath them. Now, you know this experience. If you've ever had a, a ruined relationship, if you've gotten uh, reports or results back uh, that, that cancer was tested positive for, if you've had a miscarriage, if, if you have a, a son or a daughter who, who are going wayward from you and, and from God, you know that, that crushing feeling. If you just reflect for five minutes, you'd be able to find something that, that you've put hope in, that you've really banked on, that in the end left you sick. And so as we look at this, this, this devastating deflation of unmet expectation is exactly what the disciples are reeling from right now. They, uh, they staked everything on Jesus being the Messiah, right? In, in, in Luke 18, Peter excitedly said, we have left everything to follow you. And even in this chapter, Luke 24, some of the disciples said that, that we hoped, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And given the week that they've just had, that the one they left everything for, the one that they hoped in, was just murdered. You can hear the despair and the tragedy in those words. And, and so I think that this is what is happening here. I think this, this fear that what if it fails me again? It, if they go uh, through this mourning process, and just as they're collecting the shambles that they call alive, and, and then they realize, wait, something is stirring, we're hearing reports that Jesus is actually alive, that he's not dead. This, this isn't too good to be true. It's too painful to be true. They can't bear the, the possible pain of hoping again only to have it dashed. And so I love that. In light of that, how Jesus dignifies them with a question, not an accusation. He comes to him, he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? I had a conversation this week with one of my, one of my closest friends and, and we were talking and, and he was explaining some of the things that he's been struggling with, doubts and, and things like that in, in his walk with the Lord. And, and as I was reflecting on this passage, preparing to preach, um, it came to mind in that conversation. And one of the things I, I, I wanna say is, and, and listen to this, 
that when we read the Bible, uh, we can tend to put tone to it that might not be there. In other words, you might have read this passage and you might have heard Jesus sneering through his teeth at you because of your unbelief. But that's not only nowhere to be found in the text, it, it doesn't really accord with, with anything we know about Jesus. In, in the main passage that, that tells us, the only passage in the whole New Testament that tells us about the heart of Jesus, Matthew 11 says that he's gentle and humble in heart. This is the Jesus that, that is talking to his disciples, his doubting disciples right now. And so as I counseled my friend and, and we talked about this, I was hoping to encourage him from his, uh, the kindness that Jesus shows towards struggling saints. Because I was just seeing it firsthand in this text. In 39, Jesus goes on to say, he says, see my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me, see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Jesus dispels their doubts by inviting them to see and to touch. He's willing to oust our unbelief by giving tangible experience of himself. Notice that the realness of his body is what he's stressing. And I, I think that has to do with the fact that if Jesus' body, which was beaten and pierced and mutilated and killed and buried, if that body is alive and active in front of them, then what is beyond God's renovating power? And so he stresses the realness of his flesh and bones right in front of them. Now, this palpable person, this, this person that's tactile, that, that person means that really, truly, deep down, everything is gonna be all right. It means that everything will be made. It means that mistakes and sins will be reversed because Jesus has been resurrected. And so because Jesus has come in the flesh, God is accessible. He's not far off. I want us to hear that this morning, that, that the accessibility of God is because Jesus is risen and in the flesh. Now, I don't know if there's anything more buoyant to a heavy heart than this news. But hear me, I'm not saying that if you're struggling right now, that, that if you're grieving, that, if you, that you're hurting, I'm not saying that, that you should feel bad about yourself for that. I'm not saying that that's gonna go away tomorrow or even the rest of your life, but what I am saying is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, this is the beginning of the new creation where each and every tear will be wiped away by the very finger of God. And so we have hope, buoyant hope, that gets us through our hurts. And, and so if there's anything that this passage calls us to, it's to bring our real doubts to the real Jesus. Now, his invitation to draw near, to come, to touch, to see, his sympathetic stooping down to our understanding and our experience is, is him wooing us to trust him, to have faith in him. But why his hands and his feet? Right, I, I, I want us to stop and look at these details. Why his hands and his feet? Well, I think if we know the narrative, we, we'd have to say because 
His hands and his feet bear the irrevocable scars of his love toward wayward sinners. The, the fact that Jesus hung on the wood for doubting sinners like you and I, that's what's on his hands and on his feet. And so he draws attention there uh, to, to bring us in to what he's done to deal with our doubts. And I love this, the disciples, it says that once this whole thing happened, that they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I had no idea what that meant, to disbelieve for joy. But as I studied it, I, I realized, um, I, I was starting to think of this time when I was at UCF, and uh, it was during the football season, and this was when we actually won games. And this particular game was like one of those straight out of a movie, last minute, Quarterback rolls out of the pocket, throws one to the end zone, lay out just this beautiful catch to win the game. And I remember being with my roommates and this kind of exuberant joy was welling up within us. We didn't even know what to do with it. And so one of my friends was like, growing up in Miami, we'd go outside and we'd bang pots and pans. And so we took pots and pans, ran outside and started just banging them in our neighborhood. I, that was awful. Like, I don't know why we did that, but, but this is the type of joy that's being talked about here. You can't even believe how incredible this is, that, that, that Jesus is back, and so they're freaking out. They have so much joy. I think some of y'all are probably hoping for that for the game later tonight, but, but as, we, as we look at this passage, I just, I love that, that Jesus gives his disciples hope for the future, and that's found in his own tangible body. This is just an aside, but, but I also love to see in this passage how human Jesus is. He asks for lunch, right? I mean, I, I just imagine there Jesus sitting, eating cedar plank salmon with his, with his disciples, and I'm thinking to myself, what in the world does that taste like with a resurrected body? When, when all of our taste buds have been renewed and, and there's just this symphony of savory in our mouths that's just playing as all these delight, oh my gosh, it just, it just sounds amazing to me. My wife and I were, were on the Whole30 detox diet when, we were, uh, when I was preparing for this, so I think it probably got to me a little bit, but, but that, that's just an aside, but I just wanna say, it's free, but think about that, how beautiful, how wonderful the new creation is gonna be. Now, the purpose for Jesus dispelling these doubts, for dealing with their unbelief, was because he wanted to transform their burden into boldness. And so, as we get to the second point here, after Jesus dispelled their doubts, he mandated them for mission. Now, Jesus knows he needs to, to equip his disciples for the mission he's sending them on. Any good leader would do that. They'd equip the people that they're uh, asking or requiring them to do the task that they're doing. And so he gives them two missional resources as equipment to, to carry out this mandate. Those two resources are the scriptures and the spirit. We're gonna look at the first resource for mission, which is uh, the Bible, the scriptures. In verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Law, prophets, Psalms, that's shorthand for cover to cover. 
Jesus is basically saying from, from Genesis to Malachi, or in our case, from Genesis to Revelation, this whole thing is about me. Everything. The entire thing is about me. And, and I find it startling that Jesus, in his final moments with his disciples, thinks it's of utmost importance for, for him to train them how to read their Bibles. Like, the most successful spiritual leader in the history of the world uh, decides that, that in order to spend his last days well, he's gonna teach them how to read a book. This, this must be, apparently, the scriptures play an integral role in the future life of this movement. And, and so this passage helps me as I read and prepare for CBR in the morning that, that meditation precedes mission. That, that contemplation precedes action, right? That, that the Lord wants to root us before he sends us to some extent. And he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. This is why we do a prayer of illumination before we read the scripture today and, and before we do that in our private worship because we need Jesus to open our eyes so that we can see, so we can behold wonderful things out of his law. And, and I think Jesus gives them two lenses, two lenses through which they should read the, re the Bible for the rest of their lives. And, and I wanna look at those two lenses here. In 46, Jesus said to them, thus it is written. I love this. It says, thus it is written, but there's no actual quotation marks for uh, a quotation from the Old Testament. And, and so what that means is that thus it is written, and then he doesn't quote anything. He's saying, it's written everywhere. It's all throughout. Thus, the entire book that's been written is about this. He goes on to say, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Did you catch the two lenses through which we're supposed to read scripture? The first one is that the Christ or the Messiah will suffer and rise. That's the first lens. This is the, the kind of gospel-centered lens that we read the Bible through. Well, I wish we had time to just kind of shuffle through the Old Testament and see how every page uh, talks about or points to or mentions something about the Messiah. At that same coffee shop, I actually have another friend that I've met there uh, who's Jewish, practicing Jew, and and we have conversations all the time. And one of my favorite things, it's, it's so much fun, is to sit and go through the Hebrew Bible with him and just be like, so how is that not about Jesus? And, and I do it hopefully a little bit more tender than that. But uh, we, we talk and we have these conversations and it's so much fun to kind of dig into the Old Testament and see Christ weaving throughout every single page. That's why in the, in the beginning of our CBRs, we have a section about how Jesus is the hero of the Bible. That's so important. And, and Jesus right here is saying, I'm the point. I'm the protagonist. I'm the purpose. The whole thing was written about me. So clearly, I don't think I need to spend much time here because I think most of us probably get that the Bible is Christ-centered. We, we get the Messiah lens, but if we only read it through the Messiah lens, we'll be reading through a monocle as we read the Bible. Jesus gives us two lenses. The second one is here. I'm gonna read those verses again, 46 through 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Do you see the second lens here? It's mission, it's proclamation. Our biblical bifocals are Messiah and mission. Those are the lenses through which we are to see the whole story of scripture unfold. And and apparently the whole Bible is about how the Christ will suffer, will rise, and then will be proclaimed. And whether it's Abraham's call in in Genesis 12 when, when the Lord says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Or whether it's Psalm 86 where David says that that all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you and shall glorify your name. Or or maybe it's Isaiah 49 when, when the Lord says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The whole Old Testament, the whole story of scripture is pointing in the direction of Messiah and mission. Now, as God's mission to the nations, he's inviting his people to be a part of that mission. I I love the way that Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright puts it. He says, God does not have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. The mission of God precedes this. He's always had a mission in this world, and he invites us to be co-workers to use the 2 Corinthians 6 language. He invites us to be co-workers with him in his mission in the world. So when we're reading the Bible, we can ask ourselves a few questions. We can ask, um, how does this help me understand or, or see a little bit more about God's mission in the world? We can ask ourselves, how did this particular text equip its original hearers to be a missional community? And then lastly, we can ask ourselves, how does this particular text equip me and and my community to be on mission together? I love the Bible because not only is it a a record of mission, but it's a resource for mission. And, And those things are so wonderful as we read through these pages. So the first resource Jesus gives us uh, for the mission is he gives us the scriptures, which are to be read through the twin lenses of Messiah and mission. The second resource that he gives us is the spirit, is the spirit. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. He's speaking about the death and resurrection. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now we know from Acts 1 that the promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is referring to here. But but don't miss the beauty of what he's saying. Jesus says, I, Jesus, will send the, the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is inviting us into and sending us out on the, the triune mission of God. That, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are in this rescue mission to the world and we get to play a part in that. That's amazing. In John 20, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So as Jesus was sent by the Father, full of the Holy Spirit on his mission, he now sends us full of the Holy Spirit on the same mission. There's this 
this outward impulse deep in the character of God. God's goodness is a proliferating and spreading goodness. Another way of saying that would be the reason that the gospel is is outward oriented, the reason why it's expanding and outflowing is because the God of the gospel is outward oriented, expanding and outflowing. And and so this, this mission, it's not a secondary thing. This is of great significance to us. The Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit, the Spirit sends the church to carry out the mission. As we participate in this mission, we depend on the Holy Spirit as we bear witness to the suffering and rising of the Christ. Now Jesus knows that we need this strength that comes from the Holy Spirit. He knows that mission without the Spirit is like a kite without wind. It's like a surfer without a wave. It's like uh, a carriage without any horses. It's like a Tour de France cyclist without his team to draft behind. It's fatiguing, it's frustrating, and in the end, it's really futile. Therefore, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to empower, to energize, to enable his church to be on mission. Now, as we're filled with this Holy Spirit, we join the story of Scripture in bringing this good news to our neighbors and the nations. And that is what Jesus is calling us to here. I love this. John Knox, uh, the, sec- the, the 16th century uh, reformer, he sums up the remarkable work of God during the, the Scottish Reformation. Incredible things were happening, and he sums it up this way. God gave his Holy Spirit to simple people in great abundance. That's, that's what I want for us simple people here at New City. I want God to give us the Spirit in great abundance so we can see incredible things happen. Last point under, under the spirit is, is you gotta ask yourself, why does he say to remain in Jerusalem? Why is that so significant? And they obeyed him, right? After he ascended, it says that they went to the temple in Jerusalem and they were worshiping. Well, the reason is, is because in the Old Testament, uh, Jerusalem was significant because the temple was there. And the, the temple was, was the localized presence of God on earth. It was where on earth as it is in heaven was a reality. It was here in the temple. If you wanted to meet the Lord, the God of Israel, you had to come to Jerusalem. And, and so really, because of this Old Testament mission, if you read the passages, it looked like nations and peoples streaming in towards the temple towards Mount Zion. Fundamentally, mission in the Old Testament was centripetal. In other words, it it drew people in so that they could come to the temple for worship. But in this breathtaking turn of events, Jerusalem, which was the city on the hill that was supposed to be a light to the nations, Jerusalem, uh, where the, the God of Israel dwelt within the temple, in this breathtaking turn of events, the God who indwelt the temple was now making his people his temple. And and so in the New Testament, we see that that God's localized presence on earth is within his people, the church. God's presence is is with the church so that uh, they are now this city on the hill. Therefore, our mission, rather than being centripetal, it's centrifugal. We go out. 
we're a spreading people. We, because the temple is mobile and dispersed and made of living stones, we now go out to the nations. This incredible shift could have only happened because of what Christ had done and when he sent the Holy Spirit. So he says, wait here. Wait until the Holy Spirit fills you like he filled the temple. Wait for that. Now let me finish Victor's story so you kind of get a, a little bit of the conclusion here. And, and I tell this story because it's a, a small experience of how I've seen the Holy Spirit work on mission. Where I left off, I said that we were having Victor over uh, for dinner and about a week ahead of time, we began praying. We didn't really know what we were gonna say, how this was gonna work, but we began praying. And, and as Victor comes over, um, we sit down and, and my wife, as always, made this incredibly delicious meal. And, and we're sitting there and, and he's just kind of like with his fork, just pushing it around in his bowl. He's just not even really eating. I was offended. I don't think Alana was, but no, I'm just kidding. But anyways, he's just sitting there and, and we could tell something was going on. So I just simply asked the question, Victor, tell us a little bit about yourself. And tears start streaming down his cheeks. And, and Alana and I are thinking, man, maybe our prayer actually worked. <laughs> maybe this is really gonna happen. And so as we dialogue throughout the evening and, and hear more about his story, and, and, and Alana primarily is able to, to share the good news of, of how God has worked in her life and how he works in others' lives and, and how Jesus the Christ has suffered and been risen. And, and, and he, she's sharing this, and you can see his countenance lift and, and, and there's a brightness, a vibrance to his face that wasn't there before. And, and he says to us something along the lines of, this is good news. And then he asks if we can pray together for him. Like he led himself in his own prayer uh, to receive Jesus. I'm just thinking, this is phenomenal. How does this even happen? Well, in that moment, I don't think Alana or I felt especially powerful um, I don't think we, I know that neither of us like spoke in tongues that only he could understand like at Pentecost and, and we didn't have some sort of uh, magnificent experience or, or miracle that happened. It was the, the work of the spirit beneath the surface, preparing, prodding, opening Victor's heart as he opened our lips to speak about Jesus to him. And so we could bear witness to his suffering and his rising. The spirit is what makes the good news of Christ refreshing for a human soul. Now, after Jesus' mandated mission, he, he had to make, make his sending ascension. Verses 50 through 53 here. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. <clears throat> it's easy to miss what's actually going on here. Um, we have to understand a little bit about the Old Testament priesthood to, to really catch it. In Leviticus, 9, in Leviticus uh, chapter nine, after the priests would make a sacrifice for sins, they would lift up their hands and they would say a blessing over the people, a benediction, a good word over the people. And, and theologian Kelly Capek says it this way. He says, the people of God were consistently reminded through this blessing of God's presence and faithfulness despite their sins. 
And it was this blessing that would become such a comfort to those who were weary and exiled, the believers who questioned if their God had forgotten them. So Jesus is giving this benediction. It's a, it's a priestly blessing that he gives to his people. And, and it's the type that the priests made after a sacrifice of sins was given. And so as Jesus raises his hands and he's ascending to the right hand of his father, leaving his disciples behind, he wants to reassure them. And so he, he raises his nail-scarred hands in benediction and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you. And so this is ascending ascension. The blessing he gave was about the Holy Spirit coming. And, and typically we we don't really know what Jesus' exact words were. It's not recorded here in the passage. But usually this blessing sounds off, an awful lot like our benediction uh, at the end of our services. That comes from Numbers chapter six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Now, as I was meditating on this passage, um, I started speculating which is something they tell you typically don't do uh, when you're in seminary. You just, they don't really encourage speculation, but I did it. And, um, <clears throat> and I'm thinking to myself, given the missional context of this blessing, I, I almost wonder if Jesus gave the adaptation of number six that we find in our call to worship. If you have the folder there, you can look at it. In our call to worship, Psalm 67 is an adaptation of the traditional blessing that we hear, but it's got a missional tint to it. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Jesus is our blessing and our keeping. Jesus is the radiance of the face of God shining upon us. Jesus himself is the personification of the grace of God towards us. Jesus, he himself is our peace. He is our, our wholeness, the, the desire that our hearts have to find rest and that all would be well in the world. Jesus not only pronounces the benediction, he himself is our benediction. Let's pray. Father, will you clothe this church with your spirit as we take the good news of Christ's dying and rising for the forgiveness of sins to our neighbors and to the nations. Help us, Holy Spirit, as a community, help us to worship with joy in light of our ascended Savior. We ask these things in his name.